please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, about three quarters of the way towards the end of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, that's fine. We're very glad that you're here. This is a safe place to learn how to read God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have an ESV, the English Standard Version, the version that we use in this church, just grab your phone and type in John 3 ESV. No judgment from us. You can get on your phone if you want to. Follow along that way. But we also have extra Bibles in the lobby. If you'd like a physical, good old-fashioned physical copy, you can welcome won't offend me at all. Get up, go back to the lobby and grab one of those at any time during the sermon. But John chapter 3. Well, yesterday, yesterday, and I, there's no way to say this without sounding like I'm bragging. So, I, yeah, I get, there's just no way to say this, but I'm going to risk it. This is like if there are any preachers here and be like, you should not have done that, but I'm going to do it, okay? Uh, bold. Yesterday, I ran a marathon. Now, let, no, 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 no applause. You guys get this all wrong. You didn't applaud for the communion service earlier, and now you're applauding. You got this all wrong. Stop it. If it looks like I'm limping, it's because I am. I, my legs are very sore, but it's all self-inflicted, so I'm not interested in your sympathy, okay? Keep it to yourself. However, this whole experience of running a marathon taught me one thing that I want to pass on to you, and it's this. Don't run a marathon. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. You don't have to do it. So don't. Don't do it. Stick to shorter distances. Amen. You, yeah, exactly. You, you can run or walk or do something else that's much more enjoyable. Now, now in a way, now I understand. I, I don't know if I'll ever do one again, uh, but I do, I think, understand why people do them. And it's not just because they're insane, though that's part of it. It's a great challenge, right? And it feels good to do a hard thing right? That feels good. I'll tell you, the later stages of the race yesterday for, forced me to just focus on just keep going, just keep going. I'd, I'd fallen behind on my goal pace. My calf was cramping. We were hit with torrential rain at one point. You might have been sitting in your house like, wow, it's raining outside. Yeah, we were running 20 mile per hour, gusts of headwinds. I mean, just, it was just tw mile 20 in the race. It was like, just keep going. Just keep. It was all I could do to just keep growing and crossing the finish line was super sweet, not because, you know, my, certainly because my family and friends were there cheering me on. That was very sweet. It wasn't sweet because I hit my goal time. I didn't hit my goal time, but it was sweet to finish. And, and the whole experience dil illustrates something that's important for all of us to remember, okay? You don't have to run a marathon to know this. Fa failing to complete a task, which is what I did yesterday, failing to complete a task does not make you a failure, okay? God, God calls us to persevere, that's the call for Christians. You don't have to be a great person. You have to be a, a persevering kind of person. That's what God is interested in. God doesn't expect you or I to beat everybody else. He doesn't even expect us to execute perfectly. He's so nice to us. He knows us too well. We can't execute perfectly, but God does call us and empower us to persevere in the things that he has assigned us to do. Now, in our passage today, we will get to see one man, a man, John the Baptist, who did just that. He persevered in what God called him to do. He finished his race, and then he began to fade into the background, satisfied with what he had done. And I hope and pray that the effect of studying this passage will be the same for each of us as well, that we will be happy to do what God calls us to do, and then happy to finish our race and fade into the background 
and be done. That's what I hope. So let me read this passage to you. John chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 today, beginning in verse 22. I'll read through the end of the chapter and then pray. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John the Baptist also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. The very words of God join me in a brief prayer for understanding. Lord, you describe your word using the word a lamp. It is a lamp to our feet. Guides us as we walk the path that's in front of us. And, and I pray that, that that would be the effect of this passage on us this morning, that, that as we look for light in the middle of our lives, look for direction, where should I go, what should I do, how should, as we ponder those questions, I pray, Lord, that, that this passage and the example that we have in John the Baptist and the record that we have from John the Apostle who wrote this would, would instruct us, that we would feel quite a bit more confident on the path that you've called each of us to. For you have. You, this is a room full of people whom you have designed. And Lord, those who have faith, you have saved and filled with your spirit that they might serve you in very specific ways. So Lord, I just pray that we would all be able to say today because of this passage, your word is a lamp to my feet. Do this by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Many great movies have been made. The Godfather, 
Citizen Kane, The Lord of the Rings. That's, I should have mentioned that one first. That's my favorite movie. Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Jaws, Lawrence of Arabia, Chariots of Fire, Gladiator, Braveheart, Schindler's List, Titanic, Forrest Gump, Dances with Wolves, Rocky. They all fall short of what in my estimation is the greatest movie ever made. And it's the story of a Mexican Catholic priest who supports his orphanage by performing <laughs> as a luchador. Nacho Libre. Now, if you've seen Nacho Libre, you may be saying to yourself, Dustin, Nacho Libre is not a great movie. And to that, I would respond that the film grossed $100 million in the box office, but only cost $35 million to make. In showbiz, that is success, my friend. Dollars don't lie. Nacho Libre has a number of incredible one-liners, but some of my favorites all revolve around the feeling of discontentment, which is a major theme of this magnificent movie. Discontentment, the main character of the film, if you haven't seen it, for whom it's named, Nacho, is deeply discontent with his life at the monastery. And as he takes up wrestling, he and his partner lose a bunch of their early matches. However, they realize that they're still going to get paid well for losing because the point of wrestling isn't to win, it's to entertain. And if you entertain people, you get paid, which seems like be nice, but this doesn't sit well with Nacho. See the layers in this movie. You haven't watched Nacho Libre like this. There's layers in this movie you have not yet seen. This doesn't sit well. To, to get paid for losing just does not sit well with Nacho. And so at one point he says to his wrestling partner, aren't you tired of getting dirt kicked in your face? I am. I want a little taste of the glory to see what it tastes like. Now, I don't anticipate that many of you will be luchadors. <laughs> but I think we can all relate to the desire there that Nacho is expressing. We want a little taste of the glory to see what it tastes like, right? You watch these rich billionaires out there, the Jeff Bezoses of the world and the Elon Musks of the world and your favorite travel Instagram influencer, and you're like, I want to know what that's like. What is that like? We want recognition or wealth or to do something that really matters. We want to be admired for it. I mean, that's kind of the positive side, but, but on the flip side, there's something a bit more sinister. There's discontentment with what God has assigned you to do. That's what's on the other side of those desires. Discontentment with the life God has assigned me. 16th century pastor, theologian John Calvin, he, he wrote it this way, commenting on this passage, actually. He, he wrote, every man exalts himself more than is proper. That's what wanting a little taste of the glory is. Every man exalts himself more than is proper because we do not depend on the Lord so as to be satisfied with the rank which he assigns to us finishes that section saying, the measure of us all, the measure of us all is to be what God intended us to be. It's just all too easy to be unsatisfied with the life God has assigned to us. You're in school, but you really want to be working, right? 
You're living at home, but you really want to be on your own. You're single, but you really want to be married. You're married, but you really want to have kids. You have kids, but your relationship with them isn't what you hoped for, isn't panning out the way that you dreamed. You're working a job that pays the bills, but you really want one that's more fulfilling. The list could go on and on. Everyone struggles with discontentment from time to time, right? But, but let me ask you this morning to go down a level deeper in your heart. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. What, what is it about your life that you're deeply unsatisfied with? Deeply unsatisfied with? What do you wish that God would just change for you? What do you think or not even think? What, what is it that's obscuring God's love for you? If God loved me, he would stop this from happening. If God loved me, he would give me this thing. You can all answer that. And this morning, as we grapple with that, God is offering us a lifeline in John chapter 3. Here's the question. How can you be satisfied with the life that God has assigned to you? How can you make peace with it? How can you be satisfied with the life God has assigned to you? These verses provide a compelling example in John the Baptist. I'm going to draw out three lessons from the text, three points for those of you that are note-takers. These are designed to help us be satisfied with the life that God has given to us. These three points, I'll give them to you as we go. Here we go. Point number one. Every Christian is called to ministry. Every Christian is called to ministry. the beginning of our passage, verse 22 and following, we find that Jesus has taken up a very similar ministry to John the Baptist. He's out in the countryside baptizing people with his disciples, which is exactly what John the Baptist has been doing. Now, at this time, so you're aware, baptism didn't carry the kind of significance that, that it does for those of us who now live on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, where it symbolizes our union with him in his death and resurrection. Back then, back here, Baptism was a sign of just both repentance, turning away from sin, recognition that you were doing things wrong, and also a sign of devotion or reconsecration, renewing your commitment to live for God's glory. That's what people were doing as they were baptized. I'm sorry for my sins, and, and Lord, I want to live for your glory. That, that's, that's what they were doing. That's what John the Baptist and Jesus were teaching and encouraging them to do. Now, verse 25 notes that a Jew who is unnamed starts a scuffle with John the Baptist's disciples over baptism versus ritual purification. We don't know exactly the issue here, but it seems like this guy is kind of trying to conflate or confuse baptism with ritual purification, which you can find in your Old Testaments as you read about the, uh, the cultic system in ancient Israel. We don't know the nature of their disagreement, but this is what sets them up to go to John and start the discussion that really frames this whole situation. Look, look with me actually at verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. All are going to him, which is a funny way to say it, considering the fact that it says uh, that John the Baptist is also baptizing people. It doesn't appear they're all going. But you can get a feel for what these guys, what these guys are feeling right? Sim this is not simply a report of what's happening. Beneath the surface, these, these guys are nurturing a little bit of, a little bit of envy. They're, they're, they're envious of 
Jesus' success in ministry, and they're, they're insinuating that John is probably carrying some of that envy as well. Aren't you upset, John, by what's going on here? Look, your church is shrinking, and the church across town is growing. That's, 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 Jesus is stealing sheep from your church. He's a sheep stealer. That, that, that's, that's, that's what they're upset about. Like, you're not succeeding anymore, John. Jesus is getting success in ministry, and he's taken it. He's taken from you. Now, we can relate to this a little bit. Not that, not that we're worried about sheep stealing necessarily or the church across town growing. I hope not. We want to be very generous with the other churches around town and understand that people are called to be in different places at different times. Not worried about that. However, we can certainly be envious of other people's success. I mean, gosh, we have unrestricted, it feels like, access to other people's lives on social media, platforms which are set up for people to share their successes and pass conveniently over their difficulties and failures, or when they are presenting their difficulty and failure, they're doing it in a very curated way. And of course, we're tempted constantly to either envy those people or despair because our life doesn't look like theirs. Now, listen, comparison existed before social media. Social media isn't the problem. It's just another tool we've used to measure ourselves against other people. But look, comparison is a dangerous game. It doesn't matter whether, whether you're doing it online or not. Comparison is a dangerous game, one in which there is only losers, okay? Everybody loses at the game of comparison, and it's the game that John the Baptist disciples are playing, and the question here is, is John going to play that game with them? You've already read the passage. You know he's not going to play that game with him. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I think at first blush, this just seems like John rolling his eyes at his disciples. Like, gosh, guys, you don't get it. Like, he's rolling his eyes. But, but he, in context, he's setting his disciples up for what he's about to teach them. He's about to tell them that God gave him a ministry. His station in life was determined by God and assigned to him by God. That's what he's saying. Any person can't receive anything unless it's given him from heaven. What he's about to say is, the life that I received was given to me from heaven. Verse 28. Here he describes his ministry. You yourselves bear me witness, saying, you guys remember me saying this, that I said... I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Here's what I'm not. Here's what I am. I have been sent before him. John's answer to his disciples is, look, guys, I'm not the Messiah, all right? I was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And our author, John the Apostle, not the Baptist, laid this out back in chapter 1. And I know it's very confusing that there's two very important Johns here, and I'm going to do my best to make it clear which one I'm talking about at any given time. But John the Baptist, you're saying, look, I'm not the Messiah. He knows this about himself, even though others were clearly confused about it. He knows, look, I'm not the Christ, but I know who he is, and I know who I am, and I know my role. <laughs> my role is to prepare the way for the Messiah. I have been sent before the Christ to prepare the way for him. John had a crystal clear understanding of what his life's mission, his life's purpose was. John the Baptist was called to a very specific ministry. 
So are you. So are you. You're called to a very specific ministry. Ministry isn't just for pastors or missionaries, okay? Ministry is for every Christian. A ministry really just means service or duty. All of us are called to different types of services or duty. I'm, I'm going to keep using the word ministry to describe your life, but don't get hung up on the word ministry, okay? I'm, I'm referring to the ways that God has called you specifically to serve him. That's what I have in mind. Every Christian is called to a specific ministry. In fact, we really should say ministries. There's more than one. First off, you're a Christian if you believe in Jesus. You're a Christian. You've been called to pursue fellowship and communion with God the Father, through God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit. You're, you're a church member. That's, that's a calling, a ministry. Called to give yourself to a local church and engage in all the one another's of the New Testament. As you read through the New Testament letters, you can't help but stumble onto instructions designed for you. You're a son or a daughter, called to honor your parents, care for them as they age. You're a husband, called to lead your family and lay down your life for your bride like Christ did for the church. Or you're a wife, called to respect and follow your husband. You're a parent, called to nurture your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You're an employee, you're a student, called to work hard as for the Lord and not for men. These are all services, duties, ministries that God has assigned you. And there's more. I could give a longer list. Those are just the obvious ones. There'll be some Christians who go into very specific lines of work, like into government or nonprofit work or the corporate world or overseas missionaries or, like myself, into pastoral ministry. But, but it's all ministry. It's all service to God. And it's all been chosen by and given to you by God. Both the things you're called to do and the many, 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 many things that you aren't called to do. And I actually think that that's the harder part. It's, not, it's hard to do what God's called you to do, don't get me wrong. But it's also hard to make peace with the fact that God hasn't called you to do things that you would like to do. There's so much. Imagine, this is a room full of ambitious and creative people so much that you want to do good things even but that for reasons beyond you god hasn't opened the door for you to do i'm sure you can think of a long list of good things in your life that you wish you could do but for whatever reason you just can't and wouldn't we like to know why oh my goodness why won't god allow me to do that why does he keep stopping me when i try to oh my goodness why 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 and here one of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer, we quote him a lot. J.I. Packer has a great insight for us on this point, on knowing why God won't or why God won't let us do something. A chapter on wisdom and knowing God. Here's what Packer writes. For the truth is that God in his wisdom, in order to make and keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith, so here's the purpose. God has hidden from us almost everything that we should like to know about the providential purposes which he is working out in the churches and in our own lives. It's not just that you're not ready for it or something like that. God has hidden these things from you to keep you humble and dependent and teach you to walk by faith. 
God's the only one qualified, the only one with the requisite wisdom to make these kinds of calls. But the reason you don't know why is because God doesn't want you to know why. We don't know much of what God is doing or what he has planned for us or for our church or our world. Eric and Mike and I, as your pastor, we feel this all the time. What, what, what does the future look like for Sovereign Grace Church? We have a lot of question marks. Oh, we're hopeful, confident, leaning forward, full of faith. No clue what it looks like, though. <laughs> Sorry if that's disappointing to you. I, if we knew more, we would tell you. But God has hidden many things from us about the future, even of the church that he's called us to lead. Now, we do know some things. John the Baptist knew that he was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And as you can see in this passage, that protected. To know what he was called to do and know what he wasn't called to do, that protected his heart from envy and bitterness. He doesn't give in to the envy that his disciples are suggesting because he had already made peace with doing what God called him to do. No more, no less. And, and you and I can do the same. We can make peace with our ministry, right? With our lives, whatever God has filled them with. Look, you may, you may say like, I don't know what God has called me to do, Dustin. And I, if I could politely push back on that for a moment, you do know what God has called you to do. It's right in front of you. It's right in front of you. Don't worry about the future. A lot of this is because we puzzle about the future. Don't worry about the future. What is right in front of you? What are the opportunities right in front of you that you could get to work on today or tomorrow or this week? What's right in front of you that you know would please God if you did it? Do it. Don't worry about the future. God already has that worked out. Embrace the opportunities. Embrace the ministry. Embrace the life that's right in front of you. Throw yourself into it. You may not think it's what you want, but it's probably what you need. And it's certainly the ministry that God has given you. If I could say it in short order, your feelings about the things you need to do will follow your faithfulness. I know it doesn't seem like it. You want the good feelings before you start. That's, that's not how it works. <laughs> your feelings are often will follow your faithfulness. Every Christian is called to ministry. Point number two. Every ministry produces joy. Every ministry produces joy. After reiterating the nature of his ministry, John the Baptist, which was to prepare the way for Christ, he reiterates this to his disciples. Then John gives them this, this wedding parable to help them illustrate what he's thinking and feeling. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly. At the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John, John compares himself to the best man at a wedding. That'd be the best analog here for what he's talking about. Best man at a wedding, the friend of the bride, the friend of the groom. Best man at a wedding, and the best the best man has an important role at a wedding. Okay? I mean, probably in 
Today, it's not quite as important. But back then, it was very important. Very important. The wedding isn't about him. It's about the bride and groom, but he has a very important job to make sure that all the preparations are made and that the ceremony is ready and the feast is ready to make sure that everything's in place. And then when it was time, when the groom would be brought out, he would hear the voice of the groom probably singing, and that would bring him joy. That's what he had been working and waiting for. He had been giving all his effort to set this wedding up so that everybody could focus on the bride and groom. So when that happened, he's happy about it. I didn't get involved in this to be center stage. I got involved in this to platform the bride and groom. And so when that happens, he's happy. His joy is invested in making much of the bride and groom. Now, I've been the best man at a wedding, and I can relate to this. Again, working very hard uh, on the day of a wedding. Everyone who's close to the bride and groom, even today, works very hard. There's a ton to do. The photographers work hardest, of course. My wife's a wedding photographer. Photographers have to work the hardest. But everybody else has to work pretty hard, too. There's a lot to do. A lot to do. But if you've ever been to a wedding and you've been really involved in a wedding, when you see the joy between the couple and watch the whole day unfold, even though there's an ends up being trips and stumbles and things that mess up, but as you watch the whole day unfold, it is so deeply satisfying to watch those two people make this beautiful commitment and begin their life together. It's so satisfying, even though it's not about you. That's why this is such a great parable. You can be satisfied with something that's not about you. Wonderful. Just happy to play your part. Happy to play your part. That's what John the Baptist is saying. He's like, look, I did my part, and now he's here, and my part's done. This is great. My work is complete. I mean, how often does it feel like your work is never going to end? He's like, my job is done. At two times, he references joy. The best man, he says, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. And then he says, putting a, a capstone on his ministry, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. And then verse 30. He, he's talking about Jesus, must increase. But I must decrease, right? Jesus is center stage now. I get to fade into the background. The wedding's now happening, and I can just fade I'm on the side, just drifting off. You're not looking at me, not thinking about me. And he'd say, don't look at me. (laughs) Look at the bride and groom. Satisfied by a job well done. He did what God set out for him to do. And that is, there's joy in that kind of ministry fulfillment. Look, if we do what God calls us to do, joy will be one of the byproducts, okay? You can't go out seeking joy. If you seek joy, it'll slip out of your hands. But if you seek to serve God, if you seek to please God, joy will be one of the byproducts. God urges it. He promises it. Psalm 102, serve the Lord with, not just serve the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 4-7, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. God hasn't called you to do what he's called you to do to deprive you of joy. Okay? Not at all. Now, I'm not saying that we won't have sorrow or that everything you're doing will always feel good. I'm not saying that at all. Look, pain, suffering, loss, and self-sacrifice are also byproducts of serving the Lord. So let me just pop that balloon, okay? It's not going to be easy. Those things are byproducts of serving God, but joy is as well. 
Joy is as well. Joy, joy is the one thing that serving God produces that will last. Because the pain and the suffering is temporary. Those won't last. The joy is what will last. You get tastes of the joy now as you serve God with a promise of even more in the future if you don't lose heart. Look, you'll never regret serving God. <laughs> never regret serving God. Never, nev you'll never regret the simplicity of focusing on what's right in front of you that you know he's called you to do. You won't regret that. I want you to ask again, what are those things for you right now? Hey, call, call them to mind, right? What's right in front of you right now that you know God would want you to do? Know he wants you to focus on, but you're having a hard time focusing on it. Call those things to mind. This may feel hard. Again, there's going to be times where you're going to wrestle with what does God want me to do, or you think about the future, what should I be doing next, or you're waiting to get a job, and you're like, well, I got to get whatever, I got base, bills to pay, I got to figure this out. You're going to have immediate issues that you've got to deal with. But on the bigger picture of how to serve God, some of the problem is that we're just overcomplicating it. I think for each of us who are wrestling with that, I'm not sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. If you're wrestling with that, here's what the Lord would say. He would say, look, it's right in front of you. I've given you, God would say, I've given you as much clarity as you need to serve me. It may not be all the clarity you want, but God has given you enough clarity that you need to serve him. And as you lean into those things, those opportunities that are right in front of you, he'll supply you with the joy and the strength that you need to do them well. God won't leave you without the resources you need to do the things he's called you to do, even if it's something you don't like or that intimidates you or that you think you aren't really built for. God's not going to leave you unequipped to do what he's called you to do. And he even provides more than just skills, technical competencies, or people. He's even going to provide you uh, the joy that will sustain you as challenges and trials come as you serve him. Again, all of life is an opportunity for ministry. All of life is an opportunity to serve God. And giving yourself to, to the opportunities God has put right in front of you will produce joy. So listen, don't compare yourself to others, okay? Do not compare yourself to others. Don't measure yourself against other people. Don't wish for a different life, just look for those things that are right in front of you that you know God has assigned you to do. Throw yourself into them and watch as he helps you do them with joy. Again, he's not going to give you the joy ahead of time. He'll give it to you right on time. Every ministry produces joy. Point number three. Every joy is found in Jesus. Every joy is found in Jesus because ministry isn't about ministry. Every joy is found in Jesus. This, this is the secret ingredient. Okay, so save this for last on purpose. Secret ingredient to loving the life that God has given you. Every joy that can be found in ministry or life is found in Jesus, not in ministry. John the Baptist was happy to prepare the way for Jesus, but if Jesus hadn't been glorified, 
John would have been very disappointed. But as people were, saw Jesus and were drawn to him, John's joy only increased. That's what he wanted. See, look, happiness is about what you want, right? Happiness is all about what you want and whether or not you get what you want. Now, John wanted Jesus to be glorified. So when Jesus was glorified and his happiness was attached to that, boom, he was happy. He got what he wanted. He wanted Jesus to be glorified, and it happened. Look, if you want to be glorified, you want a little taste of the glory to see what it tastes like, or you want to have recognition or status or wealth or money, then your happiness is now tethered to those things and to having them. And your experience of happiness will ride the waves of having those things, right? It'll be like a boat on the open ocean, sometimes riding high, sometimes down in a trough, about to have tons of water spilling over the deck, threatening to sink you. What you want matters incredibly, not only to you, but to God. So the offer is align your wants with what God has promised to do. If you want Jesus to be glorified, like John the Baptist, even though you're not called to his specific ministry, but the the comparison here fits, we're all in some ways as Christians called to make much of Jesus. If you want Jesus to be glorified and your joy is attached to that, then you will be very joyful indeed because Jesus will be glorified. It's going to happen. It can't be stopped. Look at verse 31 of our passage. Here we have John the Apostle, our author. He's inserting another summary statement. This is kind of summarizing this whole section. And he repeats much of what he wrote earlier. So I'm not going to go through it line by line, but look at, just look at verse 31. He who comes from above, referring to Jesus, is above all. In other words, Jesus has glory that you or I can't rob him of. You can't rob him of his glory. He is above all. John presents that as a fact, just a fact. He's greater than all, and one day everybody will recognize it. You can't stop Jesus from being glorified, but you can participate in it. That's the offer. Ministry, any ministry, any Christian ministry is about glorifying Jesus, making much of him, getting people's attention on him. Verse 33. Whoever receives his, Jesus' testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. You bring glory to Jesus simply by believing in him, simply by believing his report about himself. You're saying, just by believing, you're saying that God is true. God is true. God tells the truth. He has done things that are absolutely true. And what is the testimony? The testimony that Jesus gives is back earlier in our passage, the famous John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. This is the testimony. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look, it only makes sense to serve Jesus and give your life to making much of him if you believe that these things about him are true. Look at verse 36, fitting into this whole chapter. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Sober warning that ends the passage, but really a restatement of what he said earlier in the passage. Verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. But that's not the accent. The accent is on whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Sure, you, you serve Jesus and you're setting out to serve Jesus, but, but Jesus is the model servant. You're only interested in serving him because he served you first. He came to say, serve us by laying down his life in our place for our sins on the cross. No greater service could be done for us. Something we couldn't do for ourselves. We deserve death on account of our sins, but instead we're promised life through his death simply by believing in Jesus. How good of a deal is that? You don't have to fix your messed up life. You don't have to atone for your sins. He does it all for you. All you have to do is receive his testimony. Believe in him. Believe in this great demonstration of God's love for us. Look, God's love isn't determined by what he gives or takes away from us. It's, it's not determined by what kind of ministry we do or the kind of life that we're called to do. His love for you is demonstrated by what took place on the cross. You have to look to the cross, not to your life, if you want to understand God's love for you. If you try to use your life or your accomplishments or the state of the world at large to understand God, you'll be very confused, dismayed, even depressed. Here's Packer again, J.I. Packer again, very helpful. Here's what he writes. Looking at your life in the world, you realize that God's ordering of events is inscrutable, like he was saying earlier. Much as you want to make it out, you cannot do so. The harder you try to understand the divine purpose in the ordinary providential course of events, the more obsessed and oppressed you grow with the apparent aimlessness of everything, and the more you are tempted to conclude that life really is as pointless as it looks. Okay, it's not helpful to look at the world at large or at your life to try to understand who God is and what he's doing. Not at all. You have to look at the gospel. You have to look at the life of Jesus. You have to look at what he set out to accomplish for you. And once you see that and believe in it, only then will you see that a life worth living for him, that a life, a life lived for him is worth doing. Because what he has done for sinners is just so unbelievably good that you've got to shine a spotlight on it. Look, it's the purpose of the entire cosmos to bring glory to Jesus. And the entire cosmos will bring glory to Jesus. It's all been created for him. It's the purpose of each of our lives as well. The joy of ministry. The joy of living. The joy of doing anything that matters is to be making much of Jesus. Be like the friend of the groom who says, I've done all these preparations so that you can look at him, at Jesus. The goal for Christians is to be a mirror reflecting the splendor and majesty and grace of Jesus Christ in our homes, at our schools, at our workplaces, with our friends, even the things we do alone. All of them are an opportunity to bring glory to the one who deserves it, the only one who deserves it. If this morning you find in your heart a deep discontentment with what God 
has clearly called you to do. If you're envious of the lives of others, God is offering you his hand of help. He didn't come to condemn. He came to redeem. If you're discontent with your life, God has already made provision to forgive you. It is a sin to be discontent with the life God has given you, but he's already made provision to forgive you. His spirit may be convicting you right now, but that's not all that he does. He's not just a convicting spirit. He doesn't just want you to feel bad about yourself. That would be awful. He also wants you to remember the truth of the gospel and remember that God, through his spirit, promises to give you all the help that you need to change your heart and your actions as well. He's also given you a church family with which to sort out your complicated feelings about who you should be and what you should do. Those feelings, they feel like, a, feel like an individual project, but they're not. That can be a community project. Your church family can help you. If you're confused about what God has called you to do or you're struggling to find the will to do what God has called you to do, talk to your pastors, your trusted friends, your small group. Let other people help you see what God's calling you to do. And behind all of our counsel and prayer will be encouragement to serve Jesus with your whole life. So that one day, oh, this would be the goal of it all, that one day we could all say along with John the Baptist, this joy of mine is now complete. I've finished my task, finished my race. I've brought glory to Jesus. That's the goal of it all. And I'm happiest. Oh, I hope that our church could all say this with with full conviction. I'm happiest when everyone around me is finding life and joy and salvation in Jesus. Oh, that's worth giving your life to. May that be the heartbeat of all of us here. Let me pray that it would. Lord, we thank you for redeeming us from sin, for being, for taking the penalty that we deserve on account of our sins. For though, Lord, we deserve to die, we, we will live because your Son sent by you to die in our place. And in that we rejoice. Jesus has served us. He has ministered to us in a way that we will only grow to appreciate more and more as the years tick by. And I do pray, Lord, that you would recover our ambitions. We don't want to be ambitious to selfish ends. We want to be ambitious to lift high the name of Jesus and to bring him the glory that he so rightly deserves. And so, Lord, make all of us in this room happy to be pointing towards Jesus and the good work that he has done for sinners and the glory that's coming when he returns. Help us to be happy friends of the groom, making the way and pointing others toward him, that he might be more glorified by our attitudes and actions in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.